Welcome to the brief of the pursuit of God by A.W. Towser. The first question we're going to answer is, who is A.W. Towser? So he was a guy who, as a teenager, heard a street preacher say, if you'll go home and pray the sinner's prayer, then you'll be saved. The, printer's, the sinner's prayer basically goes like this, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And so Towser went home and did just that. He had no formal high school education or college education, yet he authored 60 books. He worked as a minister associated with the Christian and Missionary Alliance for 44 years. He spent more than 30 years as a pastor, writing more than 60 books. Yet he lived a simple life with his wife and several seven children, six sons and one daughter. He donated all of his royalties, uh, really to help those who were in need. And he had no car. They lived a simple life. They used a bus and mass transportation to get where they needed to go. The problem the book is seeking to solve. True worship was at a spiritual low in his day. It was written in 1948. People were pursuing programs and not God. Sound familiar? People were mistaking the vigor of men for the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. The Bible is not an end of itself, but it's really intended to bring people to the knowledge of the book's author. And that's when revival comes, when people develop a hunger and a thirst for God. Towser seeking to fan the flames of a mighty hunger for God. He was living in an age of religious complexity, and I think we are too, of right doctrine, but missing the life the presence of God brings. And that's what we need. We need to really get to know God. We need to have a real experience with Him. That's what the Christian life is all about. It's about a real relationship with Christ. Brief two, my soul follows hard after you. In Psalm 63, David said, You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. The thing here is that God has to draw, though, first, and then we respond. And David responded, as you can see from that verse. And Jesus said, no man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draws him. And David did it. As a deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul after you. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Deep calling the deep. Salvation by faith has been co-opted in these days to keep men from learning more about God. They can receive him without any special love for him. They can be, quote unquote, saved, but not hungry or thirsty for God. God works with us as individuals in this matter. And we should know that salvation is not the end, but the beginning of a lifelong pursuit of God. The great people of God, they are always striving to know him better. Look at Moses. He said, show me your glory, God. And did not God show it to him on the mountain? Look at David. He saw some of the Psalms that he said already. He said, one thing have I desired and one thing shall I seek for, that I may dwell in his house and inquire in his temple. 
and behold the beauty of the Lord. Paul said, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, to whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but refuse that I may win Christ. We come to him in a childlike and simple way because God cloaks himself in mystery from those who think themselves wise. How do we do it? We lift up our our hearts to God with a meek stirring of love. We focus on God himself, not God and something else, but God alone. Brief three, the blessedness of possessing, of possessing nothing. The word says this in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God prepared for us a world before he made us, and he made that world for our use. Things that were for our use have now taken over. God must be crowned in our hearts for us to have true peace. People are seeking God's gifts rather than God. And Jesus said this, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will save his life shall lose it, and whoever shall lose his life for my sake shall find it. Self is the enemy of the Christian life. We are called to give up every earthly thing and be poor in spirit, as Jesus said on the mountain. We are not to be enslaved to the tyranny of things. A great example is Abraham and Isaac. Abraham's idol was Isaac. While he had land and he had a wife and servants and was rich, one of the richest men in the East, in fact, the word tells us. He didn't care about any of those things, though, but he cared about his inheritance, his legacy. And he saw all that. He had one son that God said was the son of the promise, and that was Isaac. But Isaac occupied the wrong place in Abraham's heart. And so God set on a cleansing project, a cleanup project with Abraham's heart. And so he had him go up to the mountain, lay Isaac on the, on the altar, and, you know, he instructed him to take his life. Now, can you think about the pain involved here? This is a man who was an old man. He's over, well over 100 years old now. He had the kid when he was 99 years old. And he's being asked up to give up the thing that he really loves. Now, if God had said, Abraham, give up your life, wouldn't have been a big sacrifice. He was an old man. He knew God, walked well with him. You know, that's what he would have expected. But the idol in his heart would have lived on because Isaac, who he saw as his legacy, the great thing in his life, you know, would have lived on. And so God said, you know, in this battle for him heart, he instructed him to give up Isaac. You know, and Abraham, despite the pain of it, he realized that God, who had called this his legacy, had the ability to bring him back to life if needed. And so at the end of this battle for his heart, God said this, by myself have I sworn, says the Lord, for because you have done this truth, and have not withheld your son, your only son, that in blessing I will bless you, and in multiplying I will multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham at this point, coming out down the mountain, he had everything, but he possessed nothing. So he knew at that point that everything was really Christ, really belonged to God. And so while other people called him rich, he smiled because he knew that he was really poor and that it was really all God's. My and mine, 
Those were purged from his vocabulary as a result of this experience. Because his treasures, he knew they weren't the external treasures his friends saw, but the inward treasure of faith in God. So we are called to turn over our gifts and talents to God. We have them on loan, and they are not really ours. We're just stewards. We come to God, insisting God take everything out of our hearts and replace it with him reigning on the throne of our lives. We have to actually live this out in the same way that Abraham lived it out. It's going to be painful, but that's why he said, take up my cross. Because you have to have the cross to kill those things in your heart that separate you from God being number one. Brief four, removing the veil. Having therefore, brothers, boldness to enter. If you think about it, into the holiest by blood of Jesus, Hebrews, the 10th chapter tells us, Augustine said, you have formed us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. The Westminster Catechism says this, what is the chief duty of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But sin and fear have separated us from our father. Now, the tabernacle is a great symbol of the relationship between us and God. When they would enter into the tabernacle, they would have to place a blood sacrifice on the altar. And Jesus did that for us. They'd have to wash themselves in the laver, but Jesus did that for us. They have to go through a veil into the holy place. And there, there was a gold, a gold candlestick that represented the light of the world, which is Jesus Christ. And there was the showbread, which represented Jesus Christ as the bread of life. And then there was the altar of incense, which represents unceasing prayer. And there was another veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And in that place, once you cross that curtain, there was above the mercy seat, the Shekinah glory of God himself. Well, the gloriful thing for us, the glorious thing for us is that the veil has been lifted. And today, we can talk about being in that presence, not only positionally, which many churches talk about, positionally, theologically, but we can experience it. And the world is really perishing for lack of the knowledge of God. And the church is famished for one of his presence. That's what Towser said. God is eternal, immutable, omniscient, merciful, righteous, loving, and holy. And he is a fire. Moses saw him as a burning bush. And he saw him as a pillar of fire leading him through the desert. And there is fire that glowed between the cherubim in the Holy of Holies, the Shekinah glory. Spinoza talked about the intellectual love of God, but the highest love of God is not intellectual, but rather spiritual, says Towser. Frederick Faber, a great man of God, wrote this, Only to sit and think of God, oh, what a joy it is, to think the thought, to breathe the name. Earth has no higher bliss. Father of Jesus, love's reward, what rapture will it be? Prostrate before your throne to lie and gaze and gaze on thee. Faber gave this sermon once. Wherever we turn in the church of God, there is Jesus. He's the beginning, middle, and end of everything to us. There is nothing good, nothing holy, nothing beautiful, nothing joyous, which he is not to his servants. No one need be poor, because if he chooses, he can have Jesus for his own property and possession. No one need be downcast, for Jesus is the joy of heaven, and it is his joy to enter into sorrowful hearts. We can exaggerate about many things 
We can never exaggerate our obligation to Jesus or the compassionate abundance of the love of Jesus to us. All our lives long, we might talk of Jesus, and yet we should never come to an end of the sweet things that might be said of him. Eternity will not be long enough to learn all he is or to praise him for all he is. But then that matters not, for we shall be always with him and we desire nothing more. All we need is God, is what Frederick is saying here. Prophets um, actually live this out. And scribes report what they have read. We want to be prophets who actually live this, who experience it, who are reporting what we've seen and what we've heard. That's the life God is calling us to. Jesus tore the veil so that we are free to enter the holiest of holies. There's still a veil over our hearts, though called the veil of self. Self-pity, self-righteousness, self-confidence, self-sufficiency, self-admiration, self-love, self-promotion. All of these things are there. And tearing them away hurts. But that's our cross to bear. And that's how we can enter into the Holy of Holies. To be in the presence of God. Which is what Towser is saying. The Christian life is all about. Towser is saying, in this brief, apprehending God, I would choose the verse from David where he said, Oh, taste and see that the Lord, he is good in Psalms 34 and 8. He would say that in his day, for most, God was a kind of theoretical being. You know, they kind of knew that he, he was, you know, existed because he needed to exist for everything to be here. But the true need is to experience God. And so David said, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. The word says, all your garments smell of myrrh and alloys and cassia. It says, my sheep hear my voice. It says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We need faith for our spiritual senses to work. Relativists and idealists say that, you know, relativists say that there is no absolute truth. But we who are believers dispute that. We say that God is the absolute around whom everything else centers. Idealists say that you can't know anything is real outside of your own mind. But we say that they not, neither of them show that, that they actually really believe what they say because neither of them live by it. They have what Towser calls brain-deep ideas that are not life-deep. But God is real in the same way we say the world is real. And he is to be experienced in that same way. He can be tasted. He can be seen. He can be smelt. He can be heard. And so we have to make a shift to the unseen from the scene because the object of our faith is a reality that can't be seen. He who would come to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's what the writer of Hebrews said. And that's what we've got to do today. Brief six, the universal presence. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? Said David in Psalm 139. God is everywhere in creation, but he's not synonymous with it. That is the error of pantheism, because God is actually transcendent. He's something far more than the creation. He's something that's above it, and he is, in fact, the creator of creation. Adam tried to hide, but there was nowhere that he could hide from Christ. And David talked about it in the psalm, trying to hide, but realized there was nowhere he could go that God was not. Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven... You are there. 
If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. And Paul said, God is not far from any one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Now, the presence of God and the manifestation of the presence are not the same. God is present everywhere in his creation. But there are times when we know that he's there, when he manifests his presence in a special way. And that, in order for that to happen, we really need to be surrendered to the Spirit of God. God will show us, if we're really seeking him, who he truly is. Come to know him better. That's his invitation to you. Draw near to him, and he says he'll draw near to you. And that's about not space, but a closeness of relationship. Why are some closer to God? Because they seek to be. Moses was close to God. Why? Because he was always seeking to be close to God. Isaiah was close to God. David, Elijah, John, and Paul. All very different people with very different characters. Yet, all of them were close to God. Why? Because they were all seeking God as the number one thing in their life. David said, when you said, seek my face, my heart said unto you, your face, Lord, will I seek. The point here, God is here. He's reaching out to reveal himself to us, to speak to us. Our job, it's to respond. Brief seven, the speaking voice. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, we read in John 1 and 1. God was speaking in the beginning, and he is ever speaking. He spoke before the written word, and he speaks today as well. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. And that was God's speaking voice because there was no Bible at that point. Towser said, God breathed on clay and it became a man. He breathes on men and they become clay. The universal voice of God, the ancient Hebrews called wisdom. And the Psalms speak of wisdom seeking everywhere and searching for a response from our hearts. Natural men who heard God said of his voice, it thundered. But they left it there rather than seeing the wonder, experiencing the adoration that they should have. Towser believes every good and beautiful thing man has made has been a response to God's creative voice. People in our world, we think noise, activity, size. They make a person dear to God. But that's not what the word says. He says it's rather the stillness and the time spent with him. Be still and know that I am God. God is not silent and has never been silent. Come to an open Bible expecting it to speak to you. It is the living word. Brief 8, the gaze of the soul. We are looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, Hebrews said. Almost no effort in the Bible is made to define faith. But what is done is that we see faith at work. The serpent Moses held up in the wilderness to save the lives of the people bitten by fiery servants. It establishes for us, Jesus said, that those who looked upon that, that, basically they were believing. He said that was the same situation, the same thing. He said, basically believing is looking. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, 
but have eternal life. So there is an equating of looking with believing. Faith is a gaze of a soul upon a saving God, says Towser. Now, if you look at Psalms 123, 1 and 2, you'll see more there. Jesus was always looking at the Father. He said that. And he said he only did what he saw the Father doing. And so we should be running life looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Setting our heart on Jesus. Faith is kind of like the Holy Spirit in that it pays no attention to itself. It looks up at Jesus rather than in or at itself. This makes it easy to do. You don't have to have any special equipment. You can do it. Anyone can do it from anywhere. You can do it standing or kneeling. You can do it at any time. You can do it in your office cubicle. Or you can do it in, your, in the mountaintop along with God. Or you can do it in a church. All days are good days. There's no special day, but every day is a day that God made for those who would want to look upon him. We all come into alignment when we are all in tune with God. So rather than worrying about the unity of the church, if we're all looking at Jesus, then we're going to be on the same page. Brief nine, restoring the creator-creature relationship. Why are things so messed up? The change in our relationship with God and each other, that was a major consequence of the fall, and that's a big reason why things are so messed up as we look around. In the same way a sailor gets his bearings from the sun and the stars, so we get our bearings from looking at God. And the fact of the matter is that we need to adjust to God. It's not the other way around. We belong to him, and we are here for his pleasure. This means lordship for him and submission for us. We can understand where God is in our life by the choices that we make. When you ask people to choose God or money, God or men, God or personal ambition, God or self, God or human love, frequently God is not first. Be you exalted should be our cry as believers. We are called to sell out completely to God. And the word says this, him will I honor who honors me. If we look at the life of Eli and his sons, Eli was a priest. He and his sons, they didn't comply with God's request and his commandments. They didn't honor God. And so what happened here, they didn't realize that this word was at work in their lives. And so what resulted from their ungodly lives, their dishonor of God? Well, Eli's sons died in war. His son who was going to be born, his grandson who was going to be born, died stillborn. He named him Ichabod. The glory has departed. And Eli himself died when he heard the news, fell over and broke his neck. That was the consequence of dishonoring God. But what about those who honor God first and put him first? Even their sins and their faults, it's like God kind of winks at those who put him first. Look at David. We all know about the sins he committed. We know about Abraham and how he uh, you know, lied frequently, put his wife out to be with other men. We know about Jacob, the deceiver, the cheat. Um, we know about Elijah. Yet all of these were men whom God called great. And they are all in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. God's not looking for perfection, but he's looking at the intention of our heart. Are we seeking him first? Jesus is the ultimate example of this principle in operation. He put the focus entirely on God. I honor my father and you do dishonor me. Could this be what lies behind a lot of unbelief, the desire to really exalt self? 
It's not easy, and we have to pray a lot to get there. But Jesus must be first. Brief 10, meekness and rest. On the mountain, Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. God's desired qualities and those man exalts are really in direct opposition to each other. We are proud rather than meek. We are pleasure-seeking rather than mournful, cruel rather than merciful, corrupt rather than pure. We fight rather than making peace. We fight back rather than rejoice in mistreatment. Jesus is telling us the way that it really is and the way that God really desires it to be because he's the only one with perfect knowledge. Our burden is the burden of self. It's the pride, the self-love. If we're meek, we're not focused on the esteem of the world. We're looking at God's view of our life and not man's view. He is weak, but more important to God than angels. The righteous will shine forth in time, but we are called to become like little children. And little children don't compare themselves to each other. We got to get rid of artificiality and come to God in a real way. Smart people are afraid of appearing stupid. People who are well-traveled are afraid of meeting someone better traveled them and so on. This is all based on comparison. And Paul said this, comparing each other with each other, they became fools. So we don't want to be in that boat. We want to be looking to Jesus and his opinion of us and that alone. Brief 11, the sacrament of living. Paul wrote, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God in 1 Corinthians 10 and 31. We split our lives frequently into the sacred and the secular, and we try to containerize it. Priests are probably the ultimate example of this in most cases. But think of the example of Jesus. God accepted his total life. No artificial distinction between his acts to make a living as a carpenter or stonemason or whatever it was he did. And his work as a minister. We are to make all of our lives work for the glory of God, even eating and drinking, and certainly all the other things. St. Augustine said that all work is sacred. And Jesus demonstrated no shame while he was in the body, but every act in his body was accepted as sacred and worship for God. A repentant person who's been born again, and living in line with God's will, every act should be sacred. This requires a lot of meditation, a lot of prayer. But think about the life of Brother Lawrence. He had many secular tasks, though he was a priest, but he approached them with God always on his mind. A crippled man who had just many struggles with just routine tasks. He would pray to God and ask him to help him. He would pray to God and ask him for direction. And then he would thank him once God inevitably gave him the help that he asked for. And so all through the day, he made his life a kind of continual prayer and a continual focus and awareness of God. And that's what we're called to do, because everything should be sacred. Everything should be holy. Now, God taught Israel what holiness looked like um, with Leviticus. Things like, you know, what a holy day looked like, what holy vessels looked like, washing, sacrifices, and offering. And it was really to show them that God is holy. But Jesus changed it all. He said, you have heard it said, but I say to you, and he turned it around. He said, worshipers now, they will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Paul came along and wrote that all foods are clean now, as long as they're accepted with thanksgiving. 
All days are holy. No day is better than another day. All acts are holy and sacred when done by the believer in accordance, living in accordance with the Holy Spirit. Now, that's not to say that everything is of equal importance. Paul was a tent maker, and that glorified God because it allowed the focus to be entirely on his word that he was giving the people and not on his motivation. People knew he wasn't doing it for the money because he wasn't receiving any. But it was not equal when he was creating a tent to writing, say, the book of Ephesians. The key question is, why are you doing what you're doing? And that's what God is going to look at. He's going to look at the motivation of our heart. And it should all be about glorifying God and seeking him. Key takeaways. Brief number 12. I would say there are four key takeaways to this particular book. First is that it's important to understand there's something more out there than a head understanding of Christ. You're meant to have a real relationship with him. God described himself as your father when Jesus told you to pray to him. He said he was your father. A father has a real relationship with his children, and he loves them in a very special way. In the parable of the son who who runs away, God is seen as a, a father in that allegory. God said he was a friend of Abraham, and indeed he's your friend if you're a person of faith. Jesus said, these are my brothers and sisters, those who do my will. So you're his brother and sister. You were meant to have a relationship with God, a real relationship, to interact with him in the same way that you interact with anything else, to taste, to see, to smell, to hear him, to hear his speaking voice, all of those things. The second thing is that God must be first above all else, and you must therefore be fully surrendered to him in every area. And you'll know by your choices. If there's a conflict between him and ambition, who wins? If it's between him and and some earthly love, who wins? It's between God and money, who wins? Whoever wins, that's who's first. It needs to be God. The third key takeaway is that you need to understand what faith is, that there's an equivalency between looking to Jesus and believing. When Jesus spoke about faith, He talked about the example of them looking up at the brass serpent. And he made the equivalency between them looking at him raised up on that and believing in him. Because we need to be looking at Jesus in the same way that Jesus looked to the Father. The author of Hebrews said, looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And the fourth and final thing is that all of your life is meant to be sacred. There's no artificial compartmentalization. Um... A key question to ask yourself as you're going about any activity is this. If Jesus was there, would he be honored? When Paul was so intense to fund his ministry, God was honored by that. The whole question is, what's your motivation and why are you doing what you're doing? May God bless you and keep you. Hi, thank you for listening to this brief. We have plenty more at ChristianBrief.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N-B-R-I-E-F dot com. May the Lord bless you and keep you. And hope you check out some of the other briefs at ChristianBrief.com.